are y'all doing? Yeah, everyone's all excited for this series. All right. Man, well, good morning. My name is, I'm oh, no, I'm moving. I'm sorry. I'm not even making eye contact. I'm rude. Uh, my name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this morning and worshiping alongside of us. Uh, man, I just want to get right into it because this is going to be kind of lengthy. If you are new, that's what we do here. We love Jesus. We love the books of the Bible. And so if you have one with you, whether it's an app or you want to uh, uh, open your Bible, we're going to be in the Song of Solomon starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to walk all the way through chapter 2, verse 7. I'll explain why we're taking long chunks in just a moment as I get fixed up. While you're doing that, i got a couple of things for you. If you are new, man, we'd love to hang out with you, so please fill out a Connect card. Uh, they're in the chairs before you. Man, drop them in the offering basket, take them to the back Connect desk, and someone will hook, up, uh, uh, hook you up with an email. Uh, the next thing is, if you do not have a Bible, we have those available for you as well. That is our gift to you. Please, please take one with you. Uh, the last thing I got is, we have these scripture journals. Man, we love God's Word, but we also love taking notes. We love studying. This is our gift to you. Uh, there's a limited supply. They are in the back in the Connect desk with Christina. Uh, this is the ESV, and on the uh, it's a moleskin, so the paper's really good quality. The print is amazing. And so we got the verses on one side, journaling on the other. You should totally have one. Uh, take one when you get a chance. Um, if you get up during the sermon, I know you're not listening. Um, apart from that, I think that's it. That's all I have. Uh, man, well, really, really thankful that you guys are here. Uh, we're going to be starting a new series in the Song of Solomon. We're calling it Asking for a Friend, because a lot of the things that are going to be uh, uh, brought up to us in the Song of Solomon, uh, they're going to be the kind of things that you would ask, but you would also preface by saying, I have a friend who's wondering if X, Y, and Z. Uh, what I'd like to do, because I'm really excited, uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to just jump into prayer. The Song of Songs uh, is written, it's a collection of poems, and so we're going to look at sections, and I'm going to dive into those sections as we get to them. Normally, I, I, I read the scripture before, and then we'll pray. Today, we're going to be looking at each one of these sections. Uh, let me pray. Man, I'm like ready on coffee, yo. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll dive into our time. God, as we begin our time... Um, Man, for me in particular, as I got some excitement, Lord, I just pray that you would set me aside. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just use me, work through me. God, that as we uh, begin to look at this, uh, what you have to say about sex and relationships and marriage, God, may that begin with a firm understanding of your pursuit of us. God, I pray for those who are married, that they would not only come to know you, but those who know you would come to know you better. God, I pray for, uh, man, you to bring things up so that they could work through for your glory. God, I pray for those who are single. I pray that they would live lives of holiness and righteousness, that they would find contentment, not complacency, but contentment in Christ. And whether they stay single or not, that the cry of their hearts, that the fixing of their eyes would be on Jesus. God, I am thankful for this time of worship. We ask all these things in your precious son's name. Amen. Y'all ready? Okay, one person. All right. Everybody's going to sit in the awkward silence. I'm like so ready. 
All right, here we go, right? So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, uh, the Song of Solomon. We're going to be here for about eight weeks. Uh, The Song of Solomon is also known as the Song of Songs. We'll look at that in just a minute. And that's pretty much what I'm going to be referencing it as, just because it's a little bit shorter. But it's a beautiful book in the Old Testament. It's composed of Hebraic poems written by Solomon, that is King David's son, about a man and a woman who are passionately, and I mean that in every sense of the word, who are passionately pursuing one another in the context of marriage. As we dive in, I want to answer a couple of things. Today, this morning, the intro is going to be lengthy, but it's, mm, it's necessary because it's going to set up the rest of the series. And so I want to answer one question, and in classic fashion, we're going to look at a couple of things. And then a couple of subpoints on those things. But the first question is going to be, well, why Song of Songs? Why are we walking through the Song of Songs? Well, here's the first reason. The first reason we're walking through the Song of Songs is because I believe we, we need to have a biblical view of sex, romance, and marriage. We have many married couples. We have singles. We have people who are dating, who are looking to marriage. We have people who are dating, and you're in sin. Uh, we have individuals who tragically have a history of sexual assault, and so there are those who, man, need a renewing of their mind, and then there are those who need healing. And as much as we love topical sermons, and maybe even going into a topical sermon on marriage and sex would be cool, I figured that it would just be best to go to what God says, what God says about that. Additionally, I don't want us to develop our own understanding of what sex is, or I don't want us to develop what we believe sex ought to be, I want us to go, again, to what God says. I want us to go to fresh water. The prophet Jeremiah says it this way. God's speaking through him in chapter 2, and he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's what he's saying. Saying, man, my people have committed sin, and rather than turning to me fresh water, that is scripture, rather than turning to me, they're going to toilet water. Rather than turning to me so that they would come to know me and understand me and worship me and devote themselves to me, but also grow in their sanctification, grow to see what it looks like to, uh, to belong to me, to worship me, all these things, rather than coming to the source, we turn to toilet water. And if you think about it, when a toilet is installed or you get into a new home, the toilet's on there, it's like, yeah, that kind of looks clean, but would you drink from it? Everybody's like, no. Well, there you go. That's essentially what's going on. And so the Song of Songs teaches us about passion, and it teaches us about pursuit in the context of marriage between one woman and one man as God designed it for his glory and our good. And many honestly, don't necessarily like preaching through the Song of Songs. It's not like I'm an expert in it, (coughs) but many don't necessarily like preaching through the Song of Songs for multiple reasons. Some of them include the language. That's some crazy language. I don't know why we would go through that. Yeah, the language is explicit, but it's not objectifying, right? It's not crude. It's not immodest, right? Because of intimacy. How dare we talk about sex in church? We're going to talk about sex in church, right? And so as a result of those two things that people tend to be kind of shy about, oftentimes when pastors and preachers walk through Song of Songs, they do it in a manner that it's purely allegorical. 
Here's what I mean by that. They'll walk through the Song of Songs and they'll say, man, these poems are legit. These poems are great. What this is really about is God and Israel. What this is really about is Christ's pursuit of the church. Now, here's what I would say. That is true. We are going to see, um, we are going to build an understanding of covenant faithfulness and Christ's pursuit of the church. Yes, we're going to see that, but as we read through Song of Songs, that's actually secondary. The other thing that comes with this whole approach of, of allegory is that it's just weird. Like, if you approach it allegorically, it is just weird. So you'll come across verses that say, like, man, he is sweet to my taste. He's like, oh, what that means is, is God's pursuit of Israel. That's weird, man. I don't know why you would use that kind of language. Like, we're just going to be straight up, okay? Like, we're just going to be honest. And then you come across other verses, right? Where the man in the poem is complimenting his wife's breasts. And, and commentators are like, oh, what he's talking about is the Old Testament and the New Testament. No, man. No, he's not. He's not talking about that. All right? What they are talking about, what the Song of Songs does show us, is a husband and a wife pursuing one another. Now, what makes it so trippy is that the name of God is never mentioned in Song of Songs. So you'd wonder, well, why is this so important? Well, I would say for a couple of things. Number one, <clears throat> what's going on around them culturally is very similar to what's going on now. Man, sex is rampant and prostitution is going crazy and people are having tons of wives and tons of prostitutes. And here we have the story of a man and woman pursuing one another in marriage. Loving one another, serving one another. And so it's very counter-cultural. The other thing I would add is that the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, rebuke, and godliness. So again, what better way to have this understanding of what God says about sex than to go to something that God wrote? Some of you might even be asking, hold up, didn't Solomon have like a ton of wives and... Uh, others with him? Answer is, yeah, totally. He did. Many believe, and I would, I would add to that, that this is before he went nuts. All right? Because if you've read Ecclesiastes, that's really his letter of repentance. You know, all his vanity. So that's reason number one. <laughs> we need to have a biblical understanding of sex, romance, and relationships. The next one is, we must examine how sex is viewed today if we're going to have this biblical understanding of sex, marriage, and romance. And I'd like to park here for a minute. Because there are three ways, they may not necessarily be the only ways, but they're the ones we're going to focus on. There are three ways upon which sex is viewed. Sex is viewed as God. Sex is viewed as gross. And sex is viewed as a gift. We'll walk through each one as quickly as possible. In Romans 1.25, the Apostle Paul says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What he's getting at is at the fact that sex can be viewed as God, what often happens is that we begin to worship creation. We begin to worship people. We begin to worship, again, creation rather than 
creator. And we might come up with all these reasons to justify why we want to worship creation rather than creator. And it's not just something that we're dealing with in our day. This actually stems all the way back from the very, very beginning. If we went through it very, very briefly, in the times of the Old Testament, we see that people, the culture was all about prostitution and slavery or enslavement, and they're plundering into these sexual acts. We fast forward to the New Testament. We read through Ephesians, and we see that the, the, that the Ephesians were worshiping Artemis, which is the, the goddess of fertility, that she would promise fertility and sexual fulfillment. And so they would have festivals and parties all for the sake of worshiping her, and they would commit vile acts with one another for the sake of sexual fulfillment. We see the Apostle Paul drop the hammer on the Corinthians as they are worshiping Epaphrodite, which is the goddess of love. And what they were doing is creating and building these temples. And they're saying, man, we're going to go to church. And so they're committing all sorts of sexual acts. And Paul comes in and he's dropping the hammer and he's like, whoa, 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 man, let me tell you the gospel. Let me tell you who God in Christ is and what he has done for sinners. And as they began to... uh, uh, come to faith in Christ, Paul is now correcting their worship. He's like, hey, we don't do that. You don't do that with your mom. You don't do that with one another. Let me tell you what communion actually is, and let's walk through what God in Christ has done for us. And it's really not that different today. Like, we might be able to look at the Old Testament. We might be able to look at uh, the New Testament and be like, yeah, man, well, we don't worship goddesses like that. That's kind of trippy. That's old school. But we do have the Internet. And the numbers when it comes to pornography are ridiculously staggering. I'm going to give you a few. To kind of cut it short, I'm only going to go through a few. For instance, 12 new videos and two hours of content are uploaded every minute. That is 12 videos of porn. The average worldwide porn user is now 35. Together, millennials aged between 18 to 34 are about 61% of that traffic. More than 4 in 10 Americans, that's about 40%, now say that pornography is morally acceptable. A a 7 percentage point increase from last year. This is an article that came out in 2019. They're comparing it to 2019. And 18. <clears throat> Pornography has changed in the sense that extreme content is now the new norm, particularly violence against women. Reported physical aggression, about 88%. Um, an estimated 87% of college age men and around 30% of women double click for sex either weekly or every day. of women describe themselves as addicted, that's admitted, addicted to pornography. You would say, well, man, that's a dude issue. No, it's everyone's issue. 30% of the internet industry is pornography. The online porn industry makes over $3,000 per second. In addition to that, the average age for a boy to see porn is between the ages of 8 to 11. And so if you're a parent, you're like, man, I don't really want to have the talk. It's kind of awkward. Let me just tell you, it is awkward, and you need to have it, and you are the primary disciple maker. Emphasis on you. Because if you don't want to have that conversation, statistically, your kids have already seen it. 
That's on you. The most popular day of the week that porn is viewed is Sunday. The day that the least amount of porn is viewed is Thanksgiving. Amen. So really, it's not that different when we look at the Old Testament and when we look at the culture of the New Testament. It's not that different. The biggest difference is that we have high-speed internet. And it's just easier to hide it. You're like, man, I got, I got filters. There's a study that came out that said 54% of filters don't really work. Because you can find avenues around it. And so we have this ridiculous extreme as that is sex is God. But then we got this other side where it's like, well, man, if sex is God and all those things are happening, then sex is gross. It's nasty. I don't want to do that. Right? And so same thing. Let's look through a couple of pages of history. In the days of the Roman philosophers and the Stoics, many church leaders were influenced by this dude named Plato. And what many Stoics believed was that, hey, the body is all filth and garbage and sinful. What is good, however, is the soul. So when it comes to sex, it's just for procreation. Otherwise, don't do it because your body is disgusting. Right? And this heavily influenced many Christian leaders. And so they began to press this message into the birth of the church. And so when we go fast forward a little bit into the 5th century, we have the Roman Catholic Church, and unofficially they said, hey man, priests, bishops, no more, you got to be celibate if you're going to be leading. By the time of the 12th century, they made that official. And so if people came to priests and they're like, yo, we want to get married, they'd be like, cool, it's just for procreation. By the way, here's a calendar of the ovulation cycle for your wife. These are the days you can and can't have sex. People are like, what? Leaves like two days. Church is like, well, you know, you wanted this, right? Additionally, one of their catechisms even elevates uh, uh, celibacy. There's nothing wrong with that, man. That is pure. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. But it elevates it above marriage. We fast forward into the Victorian era. The only reason I want to talk about the Victorian era is because I thought this was trippy. In the Victorian era, here we see the influence of the church. And what we see growing in the Victorian era is we see brothels, right? This is where, where people would go and hook up with prostitutes and all that. And the church like, hey, man, that's cool because that's contained. At least it isn't out in the streets. It's kind of a weird way of thinking it. And so a lot of influence from the church and from the culture kind of poured into Victorian men and women. And I think oftentimes, me in particular, when I think about the Victorian era, I think about those big old dresses, right? Uh, I think about dudes with cool mustache. And, uh, and there were some really weird things that were going on in there. For instance, when it came to women, they would tell women, like, hey, uh, so if you're going to have sex with your husband, that's cool. Remember, it's for procreation. So really what you ought to do is just kind of endure it, like, like, do it if you have to, but if you don't, don't. And there was even this legal right that women had. This is what's trippy, so check it. There's this legal right that women had where, let's say, her and her husband are in the bedroom, right? And they're uh, doing the deed. And if he's not excited specifically for procreation, she had a legal right to say, whoa, and I quote, nature calls me to the toilet. In other words, if homeboy wanted more, she was like, no. No, i got to go to the toilet so you can cool off. Right? Like, that was a right. 
In addition to that, when it came to men who were like, man, I got all these like feelings of passion, right? There was this Swiss neurologist. This is trippy. There was this Swiss neurologist who was like, man, I get it. You know what you need to do? The problem is it's your diet. The problem is it's your diet. So I need you to stop eating mustard. And he was like, what? He's like, yeah, man, I need you to stop eating mustard because mustard promotes excitement. So stop eating mustard. And he was like, on top of that, I need you to stop eating pepper. Don't put pepper on your eggs, bro. Like, that's horrible, okay? Don't do that. And then he was like, stay away from cider, beer, and wine. And guys were like, oh, because you can get drunk. And they're like, I mean, yeah, kind of, but it's what's in it that's causing you to get excited. And you would think we've evolved from this. I was talking to one of the guys earlier this week, and he told me about a a family uh, in like outside, not outside, but like in the woods of Kentucky, Right, clearly I know nothing about Kentucky because I'm in the nation of Texas. Um, and so they're out like in the woods in Kentucky and we're, he was like kind of explaining this whole stuff. And this family was like, oh yeah, we don't keep pepper on like the table and restaurants don't keep pepper on the tables so that, so that y'all would be protected, right? Yeah, I know, it's trippy. But has it really changed so much today? Here, here's, here's the thing. We still struggle to have a biblical view of what God says about sex. And so oftentimes we have poor understandings or sinful understandings of what sex is. Sometimes we, need, we do need a, a renewed thinking. That's a, that's a Romans 12 thing. We need our minds to be renewed. Sometimes we need healing. And so the third thing is, man, if sex isn't God, sex isn't gross, Sex is a gift. It's a gift to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And here's the thing. I'm not going to be baited. I'll go ahead and expand on that. You see, before marriage, it's called fornication. In addition to marriage, it's called adultery. In opposition to marriage, you could say it's same sex. Here's the thing. There is redemption everyone here. There is redemption. And it's not that even as I say that, you might have beef with me. You don't have beef with me. You have beef with the creator. You don't have beef with me. You have beef with the creator because now he's putting your sin on the table. And you don't want to look at it because sin to us is fulfilling apart from God. Sin is fulfilling because The temptation is so great to exchange the truth about God for the lie. And so then, well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about sex? We're still not even in Song of Songs. There's five things. I'm going to go through them quickly. They're on the notes, so you, you can look at them later. What does the Bible say about sex? Number one, it's for pleasure. Yeah, right? Like, it's for pleasure. I mean, here's the thing. I don't have a Bible verse. I have a book of the Bible. It's called the Song of Solomon right? Like, no mention of kids is in the Song of Solomon. This is a husband and a wife pursuing one another, enjoying one another, enjoying some passion. Number two, it's for children. Genesis 1, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Children are one of the blessings that can come out of marital intimacy. Yes, absolutely. Number three, it's for intimacy. Genesis 2, 28. Or no, I'm sorry, 224 to 25. Therefore, a man and a woman shall leave a man. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
Man, that means you move out of your mom's house. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When it comes to intimacy, this is where you build unity and you build oneness. And there is vulnerability here. This is the spot where you're going to be totally vulnerable with one another. And without shame. Number four, protection. First, uh, this is First Corinthians 7. Paul says to the married and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marriage. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. If you're like, man, I'm trying to resist the urge to merge. Well, here's what Paul says, right? Like what Paul says in that is like, hey, man, you might need to get married. Right? There's a couple of sub points and we could talk about that. But you might need to get married. You might need to get married. Right? And if I put that on the table and you're kind of in a relationship or if you're dating and I put that on the table and you're like, oh man, I don't know about marriage. Then what you're telling me is you love your sin more and you don't know how to honor one another and the gospel doesn't apply in the context of your sin. Number five, faithfulness. Also, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you might devote yourselves to prayer. Check it. But then come again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Man, sex develops. uh, Sex helps to protect the marriage. It helps to protect the marriage, and it helps to protect the marriage bed. Like, that's a good thing. And this is what God says it's for. This is what God says it for. Our problem is, and it stems all the way back to Genesis 3, is that sin entered into creation and distorted not only our relationship with God, but it corrupts us fully. And as a result, we are enslaved to our sin. And we need redemption through Christ. We need to be restored. We need our relationship with God to be restored through Christ. We need our minds and hearts renewed to view sex and relationships through the lens of the gospel rather than through the lens of our own corruption. So those are five reasons as to why, what God says about sex. Now, let's go into Song of Songs. That was my intro. Here we go. <clears throat> Remember, I'm going to look at sections. So if you've got your Bible or the scripture journals, uh, follow along. Here we go. Verse 1, we're going we're gonna to park very briefly in verses 1 uh, through 4. Here's what, here's what we see. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Here's what I mean, the Song of Songs. Solomon wrote like, what was it? It was like 3,000 songs and 1,000 proverbs or maybe the other way around. And so when we read the Song of Songs, which are Solomon's, here's what the, the writer is saying. These are like the greatest hits, right? These are the greatest hits. Right? These are my best poems. And he goes on to say, let and, and begin. Here it is. Right, let me back up. Right? I'm, I'm so excited. Right, let me back up. Okay? Um, <clears throat> what we're going to see in the Song of Songs, remember, it's a collection of Hebraic poems. And so we're going to see a woman, we're going to see a man, and then we're going to see some of their friends. Right? And so, uh, so that kind of sets it up. And so the woman opens up. The woman opens up and she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Ladies, right? There's this, maybe perhaps there's this misconception that, uh, man, you can't do anything until homeboy says something. 
according to the Song of Songs, it's totally okay for you to put him on the spot. That's what she's doing. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Man, she's taking a risk. She's opening up. And I can attest to this because what's going to happen if you do this, ladies, you're going to get one of two guys, right? First guy is going to be like, uh, okay, uh, what do you want me to do, right? Like, like when my wife, when we were dating, right, we were dating like week three, she gives me a call. And I'll talk more about this story later. She gives me a call and she's like, where are we at? What's going on? What's the purpose of this? Like, she put me on the spot at week three, right? And so I was like, oh man, uh, uh, I love you right? Like, I got to do something. So, so you're either going to get the guy that's like, oh man, clarity. I love this. This is awesome. Or ladies, you're going to get the guy that's like, hey, let him kiss me with the the kisses of his mouth. And the guy's going to be like, "Uh, I don't know what to do, right? They're going to be like, ah, I'm melting, right? Like they, they, they have no clue what to do. And so they go to the flux to play video games, right? And so let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So she starts it off. She puts it on the table. She's like, yo, this is where I'm at. I love you, right? She goes on to say, for your love is better than wine, right? Or better yet, let me back up. Let me back up. (laughs) Excitement, sorry. So she puts it out there. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Look, this is why kissing is so important. It's important because it is an indicator of the marriage. Right? It's an indicator of the health of the marriage. I should say it that way. That's what sounds way better. Right? It's an indicator of the health of the marriage. Man, kissing is good. Husbands, wives, you should kiss one another. Right? It's all good. Like, that's a good thing. It's an indicator of the health of the marriage. And if you don't believe me, there are even health benefits to kissing. For instance, 26 calories for every minute of kissing you burn. Right? There's a reason they call it making out, husbands and wives. There's a reason they call that. Right? In addition to that, your body releases a ton of chemicals in, in, uh, when it comes to kissing. It releases dopamine, which, when you think about dopamine, it ignites the same area of the brain as cocaine. Cocaine, kissing, come on, man. Like, so kiss, right? <clears throat> Serotonin is also released. Serotonin is also known as happy juice, right? Kissing, according to Dr. Gabriel Morrissey, kissing <clears throat> demonstrates pleasure, and connectedness. So it's, uh, you know, science. Right? You guys are like, what is he doing? She's telling you like it is. So she says, let him kiss me. Then she goes on. Right? For your love is better than wine. Look, man, if you know anything about wine, right? She's not talking about box wine. Okay, I don't care if you found it on clearance. I don't care if you think it tastes better. She ain't talking about box wine. She's talking about the kind of wine that is like intentional. Like you got somebody doing this with the grapes, right? Like you could stir the wine in the glass and so you see the legs. So you could tell the quality of the wine, even out the, 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 the amount of alcohol that's in it. I'm not promoting alcoholism. What she's saying is, man, your love is better than that. Your love is better than that. It's better than wine. So she's complimenting him. But here's what I would also add to that, right? As much as she's complimenting his intentionality and the quality, as much as she's complimenting that, it's also like a warning to singles that because love is like wine, it could be dangerous, right? Like, if his love is like wine, that means it's intoxicating. Therefore, I'm drinking responsibly. So what I'm telling you to do is chill. So you need to be careful with it. You need to be careful with it. 
She goes on to say, your anointing oils are fragrant. Gentlemen, that means you shower, right? That's, that's really it. That's, the, that's my commentary. Um, your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Here's what she's talking about. Dudes, gentlemen, she's talking about his character. That's what she's talking about. She's talking about his reputation, how he's known by others. One of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3 is that he is well thought of by outsiders. Here, she's putting that on the spot. She's saying, man, I love his character. He has godly character. She goes on to say, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chamber. She's like, man, those bicep curls that you've been doing, pick me up, take me into the bedroom, right? But here's the thing. When it comes to that, that's legit. She's saying, let us go to our place, our private spot where it's just me and you, and we can be totally vulnerable with one another. To where we can passionately pursue one another. And then in verse 4, you hear, you hear the friends we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. The backup singers come in, her friends come in, and what they're doing is they're celebrating their relationship. They're like, man, we love y'all so much. We know that your love is better than wine. Do it. Go to it. Do your thing. Oh, what does that teach us? Man, it teaches that community is a good thing. Community is a good thing where we encourage one another and we celebrate one another and we want to be for one another. Not just speak into one another, but we also celebrate one another. Like, yeah, go do it. This is awesome. So she continues. Verses 5 through 7. If verses 1 through 4 are really a love confessed, uh, verses 5 through 7, it's kind of a standard of beauty. Here's what she says. I'm very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. Here's what she's saying, okay? And it's not just a woman thing. This is totally dudes, but I'm going to talk to the women. One of the things that she says here is, and I love this, she puts on the table her insecurities. Like she puts that on the table. What she's saying here, she's saying, I'm like Morena, I'm dark. In this time, what was culturally acceptable or what was culturally attractive were women who were pale because they weren't in the sun, right? <clears throat> and what she is telling him, what she's putting, him on, what she's putting on the table is, I don't meet the cultural standard. That, that's not where I'm at. And we get a little glimpse into her story. She talks about her mom, and she references her brothers. She refers to her brothers as her mother's sons. I don't know if there's beef there. But she says, I am dark, which also attests to her class, that she's not upper class, that she might be middle to lower. So she says, I'm dark because I'm working out in the sun. I'm working out in the sun, and the job that I was given was to take care of the vineyards. But my own vineyard, she refers to her body, she goes, I have not kept. What she is saying is, man, I've been working, or I work out in the sun, I got a pineapple bun on, I got some gangster rap, and I'm just knocking it out. But when it comes to my body, the things that I'd like to do, I don't have time. I'm not doing that. Going back to the story between my wife and I, that was the additional part of the conversation. 
Because my wife, as she's saying, like, what are we going to do? Where is this leading? She also puts on the table, hey, I'm a business owner. I'm a single mom. I ain't got time to mess around. This is where I'm at. These are my insecurities. What are you going to do? And that's what she does. That's what this woman is doing. She's putting them on the table. Hey, man, I'm working. I am going to have time to get a mani-pedi. That's not even on my mind. And so then she takes a risk. She goes on to say, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like the one who veals herself beside the flocks of your companions? She's taking a risk and telling her husband, I know you're working a lot. I'm working too. I know you got a busy schedule. I get that. Tell me when you have a break and I will meet you. Tell me when you have a break. Tell me where you're going to take that break and I will be there. Right? She goes on to say, I'm not going to wear a veal and I'm not going to go tent to tent. One of the cultural norms, I guess you could call it, is women who wore veals during this time of Israel were often referred to or looked at as prostitutes. And so she's saying, I'm not going to be that. I'm not going to be that, but you tell me where you're at. You tell me when you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. We're going to make this happen. So how does this apply? One of the beautiful things that we see in Genesis 2, and I want to go to that just briefly, and it's going to apply to the Song of Songs. This is Genesis 2, verse 21, starting in verse 21. Okay. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here's what they're talking about. Your spouse, husbands and wives, is your standard of beauty. Your spouse is your standard of beauty. Where you're at today, that is your standard of beauty. If your spouse is 45, you're not in love with the 25-year-old, right? You're in love with her or him at 45, right? If he was, like, super built and muscular, now he's not, your standards have changed, right? Your spouse is your standard of beauty. If we go back to what God says about sex, standard of beauty is maintained and protected with intimacy. Because it's a reminder of faithfulness. It's a pursuit of protection. It's a development of intimacy. Your spouse is your standard of beauty. You can get real practical with that all you want. Maybe you need to check your diet. Maybe you need to start lifting weights. Or maybe you need to start walking. I don't know. Whatever it is, do something. But nevertheless, your spouse is your standard of beauty. And he affirms this in her because he comes into the next section. Beginning of verse 8. We're going to go back to that standard of beauty thing in just a bit. Beginning of verse 8. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. The friends are like, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. All right? Here's what he does. She puts her insecurity 
On the table, she's honest about her insecurity. On the table, she makes her, uh, oh, what's it called, her intentions known. And what does he do? He counters quickly with words of affirmation. And she's going to do it once more. But she puts her insecurity on the table and he counters with words of affirmation. As a spouse, you find yourself in a vulnerable position. Because both of you wrestle with some sort of insecurities. And when you lay those insecurities on the table, you make yourself vulnerable. The other spouse, husband, wife, whatever it is, it is your job to speak life into one another with the gospel. It is your job to speak what God has done and who God says you are into one another. Man, I've, I've been there where I've seen wives pour their hearts out to their husbands and the husbands chalk it up to some stupid excuse about being a dude and not fully understanding. And when it comes to vulnerability, not only is the wall and the armor down, so is the sword. And what husbands you do when you don't love your wife in that manner, when you don't counter with words of affirmation, you're taking her sword and stabbing her with it. In addition to that, I've seen wives just slander and gossip about their husband and all of the things that they're just not doing because they can't do it right rather than pouring words of affirmation into them. And what's scary is oftentimes both the husband and wife will even use gospel-centered language to justify why they're stabbing one another. What homeboy does, he takes ownership and he counters with words of affirmation. So let me ask you, what does words of affirmation look like in your marriage? What does communication look like? That's always something that's going to be evolving and changing. And yeah, 100%, cool, whatevs. What does affirmation look like? I'm going to challenge you to affirm one another today. I'm going to challenge you, for each one of you, to lay your sword down, to lay your shield down, and speak words of affirmation into one another. She continues. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. He's just lying down on her, right? My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. And Getty is a place of refuge and safety. And so I want to talk about the, the home for a little bit. Is your, is your home in Getty? It's a place of refuge. It's a place of rest. It's a place where, man, you can come back to all of these regular rhythms and enjoy it and enjoy one another. Or is it filled with disorder and chaos? That certainly has an effect on the relationship. And here's the thing, if, if you're single, you're like, oh man, I don't have to worry about Engedi until, I know you worry about Engedi right now, right? So some of you dudes who have apartments, put some decorations up, please, right? Like mop it from time to time, okay? Not there, I guess, right? Mop it up from time to time, right? Is your home a place of Engedi? 
Man, when we moved into our house, one of the first things I asked my wife is she could just help make it functional. I, I love functionality in the home. Like everything goes in the same place all the time. Everything kind of flows. And so even when it comes time for us taking time off, sometimes we actually don't want to leave. We just kind of want to stay in our house because, man, it's, it's in Getty. It's a place of refuge. It's a place of rest. It's a place where we can relax. It's a place where we can chill. It's a place where we can enjoy one another. It's a place where we can do a bunch of family things and just kind of just be still for a moment. Is your home a place of Engedi? And so those are the two big takeaways in that section. It's words of affirmation, and whether or not your home is Engedi. The next section, verses, uh, beginning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Well, actually, let me finish. Verse 15, behold, this is him. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Man, th- those words of affirmation. Homeboy's just killing it, right? She responds, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Chapter 2, verse 1, she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily in the valleys. And he says, verse 2, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women, right? Pause right there. Just like we saw a couple of minutes ago, man, she put her insecurity on the table. Here she does it again. Even after being affirmed, you've had that, right? You've had those moments when you're affirmed, and five minutes later, you might even feel discouraged again. You're like, man, I'm just listening to some straight-up lies, right? So she says it again. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily in the valleys. Here's what she's saying when she puts that on the table. She's saying is, I don't know why you love me because I'm not special. A lily is one of the most common flowers. There's nothing about me that you should like. And he counters. Boom, he's like ready. He's ready. He says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. He says, you might be a lily, but you're a lily among a bunch of thorns. Like he just discards everybody else and centers on her. There's that standard of beauty. There are those words of affirmation. Guy's killing it. So she goes on, verse 3. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. All right, pause right there. Here's what she's talking about now. She's going back to his character. Right? She's going back to his character. And when she talks about him as a tree, and she talks about his shade, she is saying, man, when I am with him, I'm protected. When I am with him, I am protected. She even goes on to say, right, that his love, his banner over me was love. The word banner is a military word that when you would fight against another army, and let's say you got split off, you broke off from, from, your, from your army, what you would do is like you would look around and you would see your army, your boys waving a banner. That meant over there is the army. Over there is protection. Over there is supply. Over there is provision. I can go over there and be safe. What she is saying is that the banner that he's waving is love, so that when she runs over there, she knows she's going to be protected. Gentlemen, do you protect your wives? Do you protect them, not just physically, because you bench press 100 pounds, but do you bench, or excuse me, but do you protect them spiritually? Do you protect them emotionally? Is your banner one of love? And does she know that? In other words, 
When she's in trouble, she looks up and sees the banner and knows that she can run after it because there you are and there protection is. Does that exist? Does that exist in your marriage? She's talking about his character. And she goes on and says, verse 5, Sustains me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. So she says, man, his banner is love, therefore I am protected. In addition to that protection, he provides for me. Like homeboy works hard, and I know that I'm going to be provided for when it comes to being under his protection. So the two big things for husbands here are protector and provisionary. Yes, that means you've got to have a job. But that doesn't only mean that your job is to put food on the table because his banner is one of presence. I know you're tired. You should go to bed tired. Glad we got over that. And so what we see here is this beautiful picture of submission from the wife and self-sacrificial leadership of the husband. We see him loving her, and we see her respecting him, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ died for the church, and wives are to submit to their husbands, and it's not a, it's not a term that's supposed to put her down, it's a term that's like, man, when these things are happening, it's not going to be hard to submit to someone who is self, someone who is sacrificially loving and serving you. Loving her is not going to be difficult as she respects you. It's a cycle. Gentlemen, what does your character look like? Here's the next one, right? On the way home today, turn to your wife. Am I that man? Am I that man? And wives, don't hold back. I mean, well, no. Tell them. Tell him. And if he doesn't ask that question, say, hey, you know what? Pastor Marco was talking about character development. And so I just wanted to ask you, I, actually, I'm going to tell you, I don't think you're that man, right? Or I do think you're that man, whatever. It's going to be an opportunity for words of affirmation, words of encouragement. But it's also going to be an, uh, an opportunity to be honest with one another. And so it's like, okay, so what do we do? What if it gets heated? You speak the gospel into one another. The psalmist says that speaking the word of God is like breathing life into dead bones. Some of you, whether you're a wife or your husband, you are just like dry. You're beat up and you need life. Last thing. Well, in this, right? Verse 7, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Those of you who are single, maybe dating, I haven't forgotten about you. Because she talks to you right here. She's telling her friends. Right? Right now, they're celebrating their love, and then she turns to her friends. She turns to her friends, and she tells them that love is powerful, love is beautiful, but it is also dangerous. It is also dangerous. And so she urges them. Like there is a big push. She's urging them when she says, I adjure you. It's not like a kind thing. She's like, I'm telling you, don't rush it. I'm telling you, you need to wait. She says, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She doesn't say, don't stir it up until you're ready. She says, until it is ready, then you can move forward. 
And it's a really good place that, or it's a really good word that she has for singles. Because oftentimes, and I get this because I remember, oftentimes we're single, you kind of just want to control love. You're like, I've totally been sanctified. I'm totally growing my relationship with Christ. No, man, that means that Jesus is at work in you, in your sanctification right now. And maybe the thing that he is teaching you is how to be patient. The thing that he's teaching you is not only how to be patient, but also how to grow in your worship and devotion of him, your adoration of him. And the reason it is so tempting to look to the left or to the right is because rather than evaluating ourselves by uh, what God or who God says we are, we evaluate ourselves by what our idols say about us. And here she says, I'm telling you, swear to me, you're not going to dive into it. You need to wait. You need to wait. And I get it. It's hard sometimes. And so here's what I would close with. If that wasn't practical enough, here's what I would close with. Three quick things. Number one, there must be intimacy in marriage. There must be intimacy in marriage. Married couples, Marriage isn't perfect. I don't know if you knew that. I'm just going to put it on the table. Marriage isn't perfect, but it is real. And it is true, which means you need to be realistic. You need to be realistic about where you're at and where they're at. You need to be realistic about, man, current sins and flaws. You need to be realistic about those. You're looking for someone, whether you're single or married, you're looking for someone with a love for the gospel, not a clean past not a clean past. You're like, why wouldn't I be looking? Because our past isn't clean. If our past was clean, then Jesus would not need to save us. Marriage is not perfect, but it is true. So is your intimacy growing? Is it a pouring out of what God has first done? Well, what has he done? He has loved you first. Therefore, the intimacy is an overflow of what God is doing in your marriage. Number two, don't idolize marriage. Do not idolize marriage. Those of you who are married, married, you need to be aware of two things, the gospel and sin. You need to be aware of the gospel, that is, that God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ, lived the life that you and I cannot live, died the death that you and I deserve to die, offers us a salvation that you and I cannot earn. That is the gospel, that he saves sinners. And in addition to that, he sends his Holy Spirit so that we would be transformed. The gospel must reign in your marriage, and you must have an awareness of sin. Oftentimes, I think one of the things I see most often in relationships, it's, well, he needs to be this, therefore I'm not going to budge. Or, she needs to do this, therefore I won't budge. You don't have an understanding always of the gospel and of sin. You're just really looking to satisfy your own thing. In addition to that, if you're single, let me be straight with you. Oftentimes, the church, and I'm not just talking about storehouse, man, the church sucks at validating you. It's because sometimes you, I get it, sometimes you feel like, am I not worthy enough? Am I not, am I not good enough because I'm not married? Is, is something wrong with me? Nothing is wrong with you. Nothing is wrong with you. You are full of worth, of dignity, of value, and Christ affirms that. He affirms that. Right? 
So I'm asking you, don't stuff it. Embrace the gospel of Jesus. See, whether you're married or not, the objective is to fix your eyes on Jesus. The objective is to be fully satisfied in what he has accomplished. Marriage isn't the end goal. And so if you're single, as we talked about last week, don't grow complacent, grow in contentment. Embrace and wrap yourself around the beauty and glory of Christ. Because number three, if we have intimacy, marriage, we have idolizing marriages, we also have intimacy with God. Here's what one commentator says. Salvation comes to us, though, when we give up our attempts to remake God in our image and instead bow our hearts before him in submission, opening ourselves to receive his Holy Spirit and to begin to be changed into the image of Christ. Here's the question. Is God's evaluation of who he says you are shaping you? Or is it the evaluation of your idols? Think about the church. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus died for the church. He loved her so much that he died for the church. What does that tell us? That tells us that there is a groom who is pursuing an unlovable bride, a rose of Sharon, a lily in the valleys. There is one who is pursuing her because she is unlovely, one who is unfaithful, one who does not reciprocate the love back to him, yet he is passionately pursuing his bride, the church. And he pursues her by transforming her, by being faithful to her, by loving her well. Is God's evaluation of who he says you are shaping you? Or is it the evaluation of your idols? A biblical understanding of sex begins with a biblical understanding of the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, <laughs> God, as we close our time, man, I, I know that there are, man, there are marriages who are here that are here and are super healthy, and so we praise you for that. We praise you for what you're doing. God, we know that there are marriages who might be going through a difficult time or a difficult season. And even in the midst of that difficult season, God, my prayer is that they would turn and fix their eyes on your son Jesus and allow what he has done to shape them in their marriage. That I pray that if they both earnestly say that they love and follow you, that they would use the gospel to go to the hard parts of their marriage. That they would breathe life into one another through your holy scripture. God, there are those who are single, single in sin, single and confused. God, I pray that you would illuminate their understanding by revealing yourself to them. That in Christ, you are pursuing them and calling them to yourself. That they would find, everyone would ultimately find ultimate satisfaction and joy in Christ that while we were meant for relationships, marriage isn't always the end goal. Actually, it isn't. It is satisfaction in what Jesus has done. 
So God, I pray that we would hold fast. Every one of those, that we would hold fast to your gospel. That's the one thing that ties all of this together. Would we hold fast to your gospel and allow that to shape our thinking, allow that to shape our worship, allow that to shape our devotion, allow your gospel to shape our adoration of you, not of ourselves, not of our spouse, not of the spouse we wish we had, but our understanding and worship and adoration of you. God, may we submit ourselves, may we just leave ourselves prone, and would you work in us this morning? God, as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, God, I pray that this would be a time of worship and adoration where we give you our stuff, where we relinquish the control we think we have and publicly display a trust in Christ. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.